0: Good morning. So I spoke in the first session, or first uh, service, and uh, forgot to introduce myself. So this stranger got up and started preaching at him. They had no idea what was going on, I think. so. um, My name's Dave. Uh, My wife and I have been members for about five years here, and it's our privilege to serve with the Young Professionals Small Church. So shout out to you guys out there. woo All right, Um, yeah. So that's me. Uh, Joanna and I. Joanna teaches at Coleman High School, and I coach volleyball at Northwood. So that's kind of us. So now you at least know who's talking at you. So um, I'd like to think for a second. New Year's—it's really a great time for some reflection, right? Um, Actually, we were talking this morning in small church a little bit about do you do um, do you do New Year's resolutions. Most of us in that group weren't really into that. But the New Year's, whether you do resolutions or not, it's just a natural time for us to take a little time and reflect back on the past year. So for me, as an example, we started off, my daughter got married in January. Then my niece was married in December, and my father-in-law passed away in December. So for most of us, 2020 has been a bittersweet year, and it's been that for us. But so it's always a good time, New Year, to kind of reflect back and think about how things have been going in the past, and then you also look forward, right? And again, some people do resolutions, some people don't. But, so today what I'd like to do is talk with you about worship. You know, we we have a great worship uh, team that leads us in worship every week. And so, where's our worship? Now, I want to make a distinction. So, when we're talking about worship, there's, everything can be worship, right? If we're believers in God, and God is the God of the universe— then everything we do, my job is worship, how I treat other people is worship, how I use my recreational time can be worship. But that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about worship as in what we just got done doing. So when we worship in service. So let's think about that for a little bit today. Okay? We're gonna, and what I'm going to share with you from Psalm 95, and so go ahead and turn there in your Bible as I, uh, if you can. But in Psalm 95, the message that we're going to hear from Psalm 95 is, our worship must be appropriate and genuine. Our worship must be both appropriate and genuine. So follow along as I read Psalm 95, and I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we'll go back and we'll take a look at it in chunks. The psalmist says this in Psalm 95, Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation.'" Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. in whose hands, excuse me, in whose hand are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountain are His also. The sea is His, for it is He who made it, and His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you, hear, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest. So this is a very unusual um, psalm. Um, The first half is pretty typical. The first half is going to have two calls to worship, followed by little reasons for worship. And then the second half is this strange interruption, and I'll save that for the second half of our message. But this first half, I'm going to reread it again, and I want you to notice As you're reading with me The tone of each section Because I suggested to you that the psalmist would say That our worship must be both Appropriate and genuine And what we're going to see is that There's different types of worship That are appropriate for different reasons For worship And I want you to kind of feel the tone Or the volume even Of what I'm talking about in our two sections So let me read down through it again O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. Now, verses 3 and 4 are the reason for that in 5. Now now listen, and hopefully my my tone can help convey this. Verse 6, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker." And then he gives the reasons for worship. Did you hear a difference in that tone? I want you to look at the first few verses again, and I want you to notice, I want you to notice words in there that imply volume or exuberance. And so I'm I was a former college professor. I don't teach in this classroom anymore, but I love to get interaction. So read down through that for me and point some words out that, that show you that the first thing. Call to worship is a call to exuberant worship. What are some words? Joy. Yeah, certainly not a dirge, right? No, it's joyful. Good. What's, what's another word? Noise. Noise. Good. Shout. Thanks for shouting that. That was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Pardon? Thanksgiving. How many people love plays here? Or concerts. Okay, what do we do at the end of a concert? If we like that, Yeah, right? Uh, So this is... I always do sports after. How many of you like sports? PEP assembly in high school? Remember what that was like? Woo! Getting rowdy, right? Okay, so there is an appropriateness. There is appropriateness to loud, exuberant worship. In fact, that's what's commanded. It's commanded of us. Now, we're of that American demographic where we don't have a lot of rhythm for the most part. Most of us here, right? The the truth is, right, uh, even today, the first song today, I didn't know very well. And I was tempted to not really participate. But God calls us to try. God calls us to try and participate. But I want you to notice something. First of all, it's exuberant worship. But I want you to notice the reason. And there's a connection between the exuberance and the reason for worship. So exuberant worship is appropriate when we think about God's greatness. And that's pretty consistent throughout the whole Bible. When we're thinking about God's greatness, it's, it should call us to an exuberant, joyful worship. Look what he says in verse 3. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountain are his also. The sea is his, for it is he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. So we have this call to exuberant worship, which is the reason for which is that God is great and he is large, he's huge. And I want you to see how the psalmist, there's a genius literary thing going on here in the reason that he gives. And I want you to kind of, so I know it's tempting, I keep telling you to look at your Bible. For now, just kind of put your hand, eyes up here so you can see my hands. Okay. So in verse 3 he says, the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. But notice he goes, in whose hand are the depths of the earth and the peaks of the mountains are his also. And then in the next verse he says, the sea is his for he made it and his hand formed the dry land. Valleys, peaks, sea, dry land. Do You see the picture here? You get this all-encompassing circle This massive Venn diagram, if you will, using these words, denoting everything. God created the bottom of the mountains, the top of the mountains, the sea, the dry land. Everything that was created is God's, and that's why He's a great God. You can't go anywhere on this earth where He's not God. You can travel to China. You can travel to Africa. You can travel to Australia. You can travel to the Tops of the earth to the bottom of the earth. And God is there. He's above it all. And he is God. And he's in charge. And you can take great hope in that. And that calls us to exuberant worship. That's why he's great. That's why we worship him. That's why we serve him. And that's why we joyfully sing about him. Because he's a great God. And worthy of our praise. I also want you to notice the change in tone in verse 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. You don't give a kneeling ovation at the end of a great play, right? What do we call that? We give Him a standing ovation. So, kneeling is a different emotional posture. We kneel to show reverence. We kneel to show reverence. And when we kneel, we don't get quiet. I mean, we don't get loud, we get quiet. So, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. So there's an appropriate time for quiet worship. When we focus on God's closeness to us, His nearness to us, we, we have a quiet, reflective, relational kind of worship. Now I want you to note, the first half is God is big. And then it's God is close. Notice the words that he uses. He is whose God? Our God. It's not that he's out there big, which he is, but in this case, he is both big and out there and overall, but he's also close to us. Those of you who are theologically minded have probably heard the terms, God is transcendent, he's above us all, but he's also imminent, he's near. The Christmas story is about God coming near, Emmanuel, God with us. So when we see and we focus on God's nearness to us, it calls forth a calm, reflective, meditative kind of worship. And that's appropriate. And that's appropriate. I'm really fascinated. I I, I think the biblical writers are literary geniuses. I really believe that. They do such amazing things with the use of words. So in here... In this section, he says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So I'm going to get a little bit grammar nerdy for just a second. Bear with me. Pay close attention. It'll pay off. Okay. So when he says in verse 7, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture. In English, the word pasture is a noun. Right? A pasture is somewhere where you put Sheep or cattle, correct? Well, this is actually a verb. So that's actually a good translation that might even be, we are the sheep of his pasturing. Okay? So we are the sheep who he pastures. So the implication here, well, one more little nerdy grammar thing to that. So what that's implying is, from its grammar, is that there's an ongoing sense in which he is pasturing us. So instead of, instead, of him being, instead of focusing on the fact that God is big, He's above, we can't go anywhere, we can't do anything that He doesn't know about or isn't in control of, now He says, look, if you are a follower of Christ, you have a relationship whereby God is your shepherd and He shepherds or pastures you. You, can't, you may be going through the worst things in your life right now. God is shepherding you if you'll, if you'll let Him. You may be suffering in a way that you are not even willing to share with anybody. But God, right now, even in that moment, He's shepherding you. You may be experiencing relational issues. You may be experiencing physical issues. God, right now, if you let Him, is shepherding you. If you'll let Him. And that's why we have a call to contemplative, calm, quiet, relational worship. So let's talk a little application. We've hit the first half of our section here. So let's talk a little about application. God come, these are commands. Come, let us worship. Okay, let us sounds like it's, a, oh, optional. These are actually commands. These are commands. Okay? So you don't have to come up here and be a part of this great worship team to engage in worship. You can worship to the best of your ability. Maybe you think that your voice is horrible and you don't want anybody to hear it. That's okay. Engage quietly. Just sing to the best of your ability where you're at, and as God gives you confidence, then belt it out. And guess what? Nobody cares if your voice is horrible because we're just praising the Lord together. So let's engage. Let's engage in worship to the best of our ability. Let's look at it a second. Don't be afraid to engage your emotions. Worship is supposed to be an emotive experience. Worship is supposed to be an emotive experience. Now, a fair warning here. The way God wants us to operate with our emotions is our emotions don't drive us. Did you get that? Our emotions don't drive us. Truth drives us and drives our emotions. That's a huge thing in your life. By the way, and if you ever get if you get a hold of that, it's going to change your life in many ways. Cuz if you're driven by your emotions, you're going to be a wreck. But if you're driven by truth and your emotions flow from that truth, now God can really work in your life. But so don't be afraid to engage your emotions. Focus on the truth of that. So uh, most of these songs were new to me today. The second time through, in the second service, I was able to focus more on the words. The first time I was just trying to go, Mama, what am I singing? Right? This time I was more engaged. I was like, that's a really cool song. And I was able to engage that, which freed me to engage my emotions in my worship. And I'll be honest, I, I'm one of those guys. I'm not super emotional. I'm emotional, but I just have learned to suppress it like most of us, most guys, right? And then it blows up, and then I'm crying like a baby. And no. You get the idea. So, but don't be afraid to engage in that worship. Don't be afraid to engage in the worship. All right, here's one. Try to avoid, try to avoid controversies about musical styles. Okay, nothing can rip a church up more than fighting over musical styles. Listen, the Bible never, never tells us what style of music to worship with. It doesn't. It commands exuberant worship. It commands quiet worship. So, probably we need to balance that off. And I think we do a pretty good job here, don't you think? Yeah? Amen? Good. Um, at least we're trying, right? Um, but, so I, I was a, I attended Bible college a long time ago. And that was during what I would call the era of the worship wars, where everybody's was fighting. Is was Sandy Patty okay to listen to? Is Amy Grant okay to listen to? And the churches were literally ripping themselves apart. So just know this go to the Bible, read Psalm 150, right? The Bible says, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Okay, good. We only use songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. What did they sound like back 2,000 years ago? I don't know. We don't have records. But what we do know is that there's stringed instruments in Psalm 185. There's brass instruments in Psalm ninety five, There are rhythm instruments like drums and cymbals in Psalm 150. Excuse me, there is no Psalm 195. I'm not sure how I got that. But you get the idea. You get the idea. Don't. Let's just avoid that controversy. Let's all acknowledge that we like our style of music. Most of us, if you if you're up in the 80s, what do you like? 80s. If you grew up in the 90s, 90s. If you grew up in the 1950s, you're probably like big band. And you may not be comfortable with all styles of music. That's okay. Just engage. Just engage. Do your best. Best of your ability before God. And just focus. Focus and don't let us, don't, don't let music be something that splits the church. And then the last one, right? Just a reminder. We're, in, we're commanded to do this. We're commanded to do this. So let's engage. Let's do our best. Whatever level. If you're Pavarotti, come on up and sing. Or blow us away from back there, right? If, if, if you don't have a voice and you're not comfortable, just do to the best of your ability and grow. And God will grow you over time. Alright, so we're commanded to worship appropriately. And that's then when this text takes a really, and I'm going to say dark, it takes a really dark turn. Because this text, all of a sudden, has this interruption. And I'll Commentators, many commentators, don't quite know what to do with this text because it's such a weird break. Because it's almost as if during the middle of this message, somebody came trotting in from the back in like an old prophet's outfit with like a staff and starts yelling at everybody in here. Would that kind of shock you if that happened? Yeah, imagine that. Just, ah, today if you hear my voice, don't pay attention to him, listen to me. All eyes would turn, and then we'd all be really uncomfortable in this social situation, and then we'd listen to what he said. That's what's actually happening in this passage. Because this is a very typical psalm until that last line of verse 7. And hopefully you'll catch the tone in how I'm trying to read it. So look at the last line of verse 7. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your heart as at Meribah, As in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation, and it said they are a people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest. So what started off as a very, very positive uplifting, typical psalm ends it, they're not going to enter into my rest. Just got serious. So, probably the biggest challenge in preaching this passage is this is what I would call um, one of those, it's probably one of the most intertextual passages in the Bible. In other words, intertextual. In other words, this text if you go back, it goes all the way back to the Exodus. And it refers back to some events that we're going to have to cover. And then as you move forward, it's you see it in Psalm 95. Well, you see it in Joshua. And then you see some of it in Psalm 95. And then if you fast forward all the way to the New Testament, actually Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, I would suggest, are an actual uh, a message, a commentary on this section of Psalm 95. So it's... I, I'm not going to take, literally, we could probably take three weeks to go through all that material. Don't worry, I won't. I'm going to try to give you the thumbnail of a thumbnail. Okay? So, let's start with the thumbnail. We'll work our way back down through the text. It says this Today, if you hear, would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in, Massa, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. So, this is a reference. This is a reference to the nation of Israel as they came out of the Exodus. And they are just about to come to Sinai and receive the Ten Commandments. And he says, Do not harden your hearts as they did at Merah and Massa and Meribah. Massa and Meribah, um, well, let me just kind of cover the story real quick. So when you, when you go to Exodus 17, which we won't turn there, the children of Israel who have come through a great number of experiences with God. God has delivered them from slavery using the ten plagues, literally turning the water of the Nile to blood. He's seen them, they've seen God open up the waters of the Red Sea and let them walk right through. And after experiencing all those things, they get to this place near Rephidim, and there's no water there. Now, God has just turned the Water to blood in Egypt. He's just open up a sea and let them walk right through, and they get to this place where there's no water, and they're like, Hey, there's no water! We don't trust God. Did you bring us out here to die of thirst? And Moses, this is where Moses strikes the rock, and the water comes out, and he provides the water for them. But Moses names that place... Massa and Meribah, which means testing and contention. Because this is a place where the children of Israel showed their lack of faith in God, and they tested God, and they contended with God. Excuse me, I'm going to grab a little water here. Notice what he says. Do not harden your hearts. So that act of testing and contention was not just, oh, we want some water, we're thirsty. It was an actual questioning of God and a contention against God and a revelation of a hardness of their hearts. So this is a serious thing. This is not, a, this is not anything to be looked at as if it's just trite. Then he says in verse 9, When your fathers tested me, they tried me though they had seen my work. So back in Egypt, they saw the ten plagues. They saw God deliver them through the Red Sea. They get into the desert and one little thing and they're eh, I want water. And I question, does God really care for us? Verse ten for forty years I loathed that generation. So that's a reference to a little bit afterwards, after the issue at Rephidim and the Massa and Meribah. They're about to go into the land, and God says, send in 12 spies, and I want you to search out the land. Now God wanted them to see how cool it was going to be, and he wanted them to plot a strategy. But when they came back, 10 of the spies was like, oh no, we're in trouble. They have giants in that land, and we can't take this. But two, Joshua and Caleb said, Give me that mountain, man. I'm going in. Right? We're going in. We trust God. And Israel sided with the ten instead of the two. And when Israel sided with the ten instead of the two, God condemned that generation to wander the wilderness for 40 years, dying off slowly until that whole generation had passed away and then the next generation gets to go into the promised land. For 40 years, I loathed that generation. They were such an evil, unbelieving, hard-hearted people that God loathed them for 40 years while they died off. They said, and and said, they are a people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. So what we have here is people who are in the nation of Israel who are not believers. They're not believers. So verse 11, Therefore I swore in my anger they truly shall not enter into my rest. So that term, rest, is a really interesting term because once they crossed over, once that one generation of Israelites passed away and God crossed them over the River Jordan, the book of Joshua will consistently use the word rest. Joshua gave them rest. And it's this beautiful picture of what the nation of Israel was supposed to experience in the land. God was giving them a place where they no longer had to wander, a place where they could work, and grow crops and earn a living, a place where they could establish a center of worship and go and worship on a regular basis. It was rest. So this is the weird part about this text. And this is what comes up in the book of Hebrews. So this psalm was written to a people who are in the land of Israel. So therefore, by definition, they are in rest, right? And yet he says, they will not enter into my rest. Riddle me that. So in other words, there is a rest, a kind of foretaste of ultimate rest. The nation of Israel went into the land and they experienced a taste of what eternity was going to be like. Because eternity, we find out in Hebrews, is the rest that Psalm 95 is talking about. So there were people who were in the nation of Israel... Worshiping along with everybody else. And God warns them, Today, do not harden your heart because you won't enter into the rest. They participated in temple worship. They went to synagogue. They worshiped corporately and privately in homes. And yet, they were evil and had unbelieving hearts. So this is why I said in the beginning, our worship must be both appropriate and genuine. Our worship must be appropriate and genuine. Let's turn over, if you have your Bibles, turn over to the book of Hebrews, chapter 3. And I think we have it up here for you. So I'm going to read one verse earlier. That was my fault. It's not the PowerPoint guy's fault. Sorry about that. So you're going to recognize he's talking about Psalm 95 here. So he says this, And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Remember, he loathed that generation for 40 years. And to whom did he swear they would not enter into his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Wait, read that again. We see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. I'm sorry, how do I see unbelief? Can I kind of peel your head back and go, Oh, there's the unbelief right there. Or can I peel your heart open and go, Oh, there's the unbelief right there. How can I see unbelief? By their behavior. And that's the point this text is making. It's a really great, another genius play on words. We see that they were not able to enter. The verse before it said they could not enter because they disobeyed. Oh, so it's all about obedience. No, it's about their heart because it's an unbelieving heart that causes this disobedience. How do we know what you really believe? How do you know what I really believe? How do we know what politicians really believe? How do we know about whoever? We know by what they do. We know by what they do. So it's not that... You're saved by your works. We're saved by grace. But the works that we do flow from a genuine heart of belief. And God creates that in us. And so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And that's the warning for us today. That's the warning for each of us today. It's a warning for me today. It's the warning for you today. So let's let's talk about some application here. Let's bring up the first application, if we will. We must examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. At this new year, it's better time than any other for us to go. Okay, am I really a believer? Is this thing? Am I serious about this? Well, what's the first thing I can ask myself? Have I made a profession of faith? Have I ever come to a point in my life where I've bowed my knee to God and said, "I need your help. I'm a sinner." I accept your free salvation. Have you ever come to that point? Well, that's certainly a good starting point, right? And some of you here, this may be something that you've never done. Don't go today, I plead with you, don't go today without doing that. Don't go another day without doing that. Because God, you will never come to God unless He draws you. And some of you may be feeling that drawing right now. Maybe it's time to respond. If you do, come talk to us. We can help you afterwards. Second, is there an identifying, ongoing spiritual growth in my life? Can I look at my life and say, I see that God has been working in my life over time. Because God didn't just come to save you from the consequences of your sin. God literally came to save you from sin. In other words, He is going to take sin out of you, and eventually you will never even be able to sin. How cool is that? So, is there an uh, ongoing, identifiable spiritual growth in my life? And if you if you look back at your life and say, I can see no spiritual growth in my life, maybe you need to evaluate to see whether you're in the faith or not. Good, let's go to the next one. Do I desire fellowship with other believers? Some of us have been hurt by other believers. But one of the signs of a believer is they want to fellowship with like-minded believers. Is that missing in your life? Maybe you need to evaluate. Good, let's go one more. Do I want to read the Word? Do I want to find ways to get the Word of God in my life? Do I want to read it? Now, I know, look, I know there's a generational difference. Okay? So some of you, were, you've been so bombarded with TikTok and social media and images, and you, you, I'm not making fun, this is just a reality. Some of you have a hard time concentrating on reading for more than three minutes. And it's not a reprimand, it's just kind of a statement of fact from our culture. You need to just work at learning to read the scriptures. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. There needs to be a place for personal Bible study and personal Bible reading in your life, or else you'll never grow. It's just something we need to do, something that I need to do, something that we all need to do. All right. Do I see God getting rid of sin in my life? You will never reach perfection. while you're here on earth, but God's going to be growing you all throughout your life Do do I see that in my life? Do I see God getting rid of sin in my life? I I've spent some time of course when i'm preaching this i'm like well I better try and think about myself And i've thought of i've god's showed me some things that I still need to work on But he's also showed me some things that i've grown in And that that's encouraging and exciting and it's a sign that i'm a believer Because God's working in my life to get rid of sin in my life. All right, let's go one more. So this last one I added at the last second. That's why the font's a little bit different. Because I realized I was only talking to people, I was actually only talking to people who who were struggling with getting rid of sin in their lives. Okay, so there is this kind of thing. If you've been, you know, living for the Lord for decades, yes, there's going to be small sins in your life, but you might be tempted to think, oh, yeah, I don't have any, you know, I don't commit adultery. I don't watch pornography. Whatever. You might be, go. Oh, I'm good. Okay, so let's ask some questions for you. Um, as I've gotten more spiritually mature, have I started looking down my nose at other people? Or do I look at them with compassion the way Jesus does? And I find, if I find people who are living in sin, does my heart move out to them in love? Or do I want to separate myself in judgment? Because that's not the sign of a believer. The way God would grow us is to help us to be, yes, we need to be discerning, that's true, but we would be less judgmental and more compassionate for those who are trapped in sin. So, God calls us to worship both appropriately and genuinely. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for this opportunity to open the word. Lord, convict me, convict us of where we need to grow and what we need to do to change in our lives. If anybody's here who doesn't know you as Savior, we'd ask that you would um, draw them to yourself and save them today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.